0: Hey, uh, welcome. If you're new around here, we want to extend a special welcome to you. If you don't know me, my name's Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here. And uh, in just a little bit, we're going to get to the message. But before we do, I just want to take a moment and I want to say thank you so much. Uh, to everyone that's been helping in this project, all of the volunteers that have been coming out and doing projects throughout the week and um, coming out on Fridays and helping us transform this place. Don't look too closely at the floor on your way out, please, because we know we tried really, really hard. We mopped multiple times, but it'll take a while. We'll be mopping this place for months, and then, then uh, we'll get the new floor in and here hopefully next month, and then, then it'll look good. But uh, just want to say thank you. Thanks to our contractors uh, that have been so generous and and, uh, donated so much. And just everybody that has given towards our home building campaign. And those of you that so faithfully have supported the church over the years, we couldn't do this without you. And so really, um, really this remodel and build out that you see around you is kind of the kind of the culmination of a dream that started just over five years ago. And I remember when we were next door in that little space over there, getting ready to go to add a Sunday service to our Saturday, getting ready to go full time. We found out we might not have a place to meet anymore. Freaking out, right? And that's when uh, somebody said, have you ever thought about that big building over here, which was empty? And I said, well, of course I've thought about it. But I know what they were asking for three little office units, you know, and there's no way we could afford that. But let's pray about it and just see what God does. And four months later, we are moving into here with a short-term lease I, we, we said we're going to hold it with open hands, and we don't know if this will be, God will let this be our long term home or not. But we started praying. God started praying, you could give us this place. I even got my kids to pray because I don't know. There's just something about when kids pray. So we parked out here, and I said, Samuel, why don't you pray for this, you know? And uh, so it was like, Lord, you could give us this building. You could give us this building. And so we started, uh, you know, we signed a longer term lease. And then we started dreaming about building it out. Actually, I started remodeling it in my head like the first day we moved into here, right? Because that's just the way I'm a remodeler. I've always been one. Um, And started dreaming about what the space could be like down the road. I remember walking through this huge open thing that, you know, before all these walls, before the temporary walls were in, it just felt like this giant space. And we had, you know, like 50 of us on a good night, right? But God allowed us to grow And we began to plan to to do this, to do the build-out in 2015, after we signed a longer-term lease. And we found out that just the HVAC upgrades that we were going to have to do by code were going to cost about $65,000, you know, before we even started building the bathrooms. And so we said, all right, we'll get by a little bit longer, and let's make purchasing the property our first priority. And then after we're able to purchase it, the Lord lets us do that. Then let's look at building it out and making the facility what we really hope it can be. And so, about 18 months ago, 19 months ago, we launched our home building campaign. And many of you were there for that. And many of you have given generously and faithfully towards that over the last year and a half. Um, but as we're building, if you're in any of the construction trades, you know over the last couple of years, uh, costs have just escalated. Uh, exponentially. And so basically, the long and the short of it is we're as we're in this project, we're going to wind up spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to $60,000 more than we anticipated spending. And we're committed to finishing this, it's going to look great. um, But we would really love to finish this project and not take on any more debt and uh, and just see this place be transformed into a place that will really position us to continue to grow and continue to reach our community. Now, the point of all this isn't just so we can have a fancier, nicer, comfier spot for us all to hang out and, and do our Christian thing. The point of this all is that we can be positioned better to continue to grow, to continue to reach our community for Jesus, and to continue to reach our world for Jesus. And so that's why we're doing all this and so here's all I'm asking you to do. Um, you know, I know we've grown a lot over the last uh, 18, 19 months, and uh, maybe there's some of you that you just didn't even really know about this building campaign. And others, maybe uh, the, you, you pledged, and it just sort of slipped off your radar at some point. And then others, you've given generously, but maybe God is tapping your heart uh, as we continue. And so what all I'm asking you to do is, is pray about what God might have you to do over this summer as we try to really push hard and finish up this project and see if God might be prompting you um, to get involved and be part of our building campaign. You can do that in one of two ways. Either just notate it building uh, and give in the black giving box in the back or you can go to our website, lifegj.org and give online and there's a, you just select the building campaign online. So thank you. And thank you so much to all of you that have been volunteering and giving towards this. All right, so let's get on to what we're talking about. Now, we have been in a series in the book of Luke for quite a while, haven't we? Actually, we've taken some big, long big long breaks, and we've broken it up into multiple series just to try to trick you and make you feel like we haven't been in a series for 40-some weeks uh, but we have been, and we've been slowly working our way through the book of Luke, and I've made my commitment, Scouts Honor, we are going to finish this book this summer. And so we are, we are moving through the book of Luke. We'll wrap it up August 3, 4, and uh, there's some great stuff still to come. So let me just get us where we're going by, by saying this. You know, most of us start out our life with, with with some real dreams, right? I mean, you remember, maybe some of you, you're in middle school or high school, and you've got big dreams for your future. Um, some of you remember those feelings going off to college or graduating, and you had real big dreams for your future. You know, maybe it was career thing. Uh, it was just some passion, some hobbies, some interest, things you wanted to do, things you wanted to accomplish. Maybe for you, it was a level of success in your life, whatever that meant, maybe financial success, maybe a position, you know, a level of status or, or, or something. But you had some dreams. Maybe that was a relationship thing. Like, it, it was more of a thing of who you wanted to be with throughout this process of life, right? And for many of you, I'm trusting since you're in church, at some point along the way, um, that, that big thing on your heart that lit your heart up was to follow Jesus with your life, to give him your life, and to follow him, and to connect with everything that he had for you. And here's the problem. five ten. 20, 30 years later for so many, for so many. It just seems like dreams evaporate. Good intentions get lost along the way. Things don't work out the way that you thought they would. That relationship that you thought would be the long haul didn't work out that way. And for many of you, that passion to follow Jesus, that thing that just lit your heart up, that joy in your heart, that connection to God along the way just somewhere dried out. And now you feel like you're living with this void inside that you just can't fill. You just can't fill. Henry David Thoreau said this. It's a famous quote, and I'm not sure most of you have heard it. The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. I think this is particularly true for, for us guys in the room, although definitely true for ladies as well. But there's this thing inside that just thinks, if we could just get here, if we could just make this happen, if I could just attain this dream, I would be there. And you arrive, and you, what you realize very quickly is they're moved. And so now it's just like, well, okay, you do this little reset thing, and if I could just get there. And there's this quiet desperation you have inside to attain that thing. Or for others, it was that thing. For you, it's that dawning realization that you're not going to get to everything you dreamed of. That it's just not going to happen the way you thought it was. That it's not going to go that way in life for you. You know, um, we we're having a sermon prep meeting this week. And uh, our operations pastor, John, had this thought, this great analogy. He said, you know, it's kind of like for, for many people, it's kind of like uh, the analogy of the dog chasing the bumper. I, uh, I, my parents would send me up to this ranch when I was a kid up in Parachute that our friends had. And I just remember, you know, you remember driving down country roads and those dogs just tearing out after you. And every time you drive by and it's like, what are they going to do if they catch you, right? Have you ever had that thought? Have you thought this through? Obviously not. You're a dog, but you know, you should pause and think this through. Because the, the reality of it is for most dogs, they either give up along the way, they just resign themselves to the fact that they're never going to catch the bumper and they give up, right? Or they're just, they just go for it. But w- without ever realizing like, what happens when you actually catch the bumper. What then? Then what? Then you have a bumper. <laughs> what are you going to do with a bumper, right? What are you going to do with a bumper? And see, for many people, that's the way you've lived your life is either along somewhere along the way you just ran out of steam when you realized you were never going to catch it, or you still, you're just going after it, going after it, going after it, and you never actually paused to ask yourself, what if I get it? What then? Is that going to fill the space inside of me? What is, what is this thing driving me? And is that going to go away after I, I, I reach it? And for so many people, the answer is just no. No, there'll just be another bumper there'll be another thing. And and, and whatever that thing is, isn't going to fill that quiet desperation in your heart. And so today we're going to talk about that desperation in our hearts. And we're going to look at, I think, one of the key passages in the accounts of Jesus that will help us understand how that desperation connects to the way we understand the heart of our heavenly father toward us. And to help us do that, we're going to look at two characters named Zach and Bart. Zach and Bart. And uh, I thought I was pretty clever with my sermon title, you know, because pastors, we're a little corny sometimes, got to admit. So I came up with this, Zach, Bart, and Hearts. I think it's good. You know, that's fine. That's for me, not for you. Zach, Bart, and Hearts. Now, before I get to Zach, Bart, and Hearts... um, I need to set this talk up this way Uh, before we get to the scripture here. And if you want to start turning to it, we're going to be in Luke 18. But one of the key ideas of the New Testament is that Jesus reveals to us who God the Father is that Jesus says this himself so plainly, and then the writers of the New Testament echo this all throughout, that if you want to understand the heart of the Father God, you need to understand Jesus. He says, the only way you know the Father is if you understand me. And so if you want to understand who God is, really the only way you can do that, the only way you can comprehend that is to really get to know the life and the person of Jesus That's the only way you can really understand God. And so where we pick up the text here um, is in Luke chapter 18. And this is on the way to Jerusalem, on the journey to Jerusalem towards the cross. And it's approaching the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross. And so in verse 31 of 18, Jesus says this. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, 12 disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And so he says, everything that's been written about me for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 52 and 53, that was written almost 700 years before Jesus, that Messiah would be rejected by his own people, that he would suffer and die. And just a real quick note on this, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning that, it, that if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, and he does this multiple times, and if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off, you should follow them. Don't you think? And so it goes on to say in verse 34 that the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So the disciples, they couldn't comprehend it. They must have thought Jesus was just speaking in riddles or something. I mean, they just couldn't wrap their minds around how this could be the will of God, that that he would come and suffer and die. It just didn't make sense how Messiah would do this. They couldn't understand it because of expectations, expectations. And and here's just a real key that you need to understand about your faith is that expectations can prevent us from seeing what God is doing in the present. There's a big difference. There's this whole way of thinking in in, in the Christian life and teaching, and that is we're taught to live with expectancy. And I think that's a great thing, to live with an expectancy. And by what I mean of that by that is live with an expectancy that God is alive, he's active, he's moving in our lives. See, too many people, they lose that sense of expectancy. And basically, you wouldn't say you, under, you believe this uh, uh, theologically or anything, but in your head, you basically live and act like God somehow just wound it all up and now he's sort of distant. That's the way you actually live. That's called a deist. And so many Christians um, really live that way with no expectancy that God is actually going to do anything in the here and now. And so we're called to live with an expectancy, but here's where people get this uh, confused so many times. They turn expectancy into expectations. And the expectations go something like this, because I know God is good, that's what the Bible says, therefore my life should look like this. My expectation is that when I pray, the answer is always going to be yes. And so I expect my life is going to turn out like this. And when that doesn't happen, so many people end up having this disillusionment that leads to doubt. And they end up walking away from God. They end up detaching, right? That's the pattern you see in so many people's lives. See, expectant faith that we see in the scriptures is, is almost always based around something that God has already said will happen. That God makes a promise and you live with expectant faith that he's going to keep that promise. And see, the disciples couldn't wrap their minds around this because they had expectations about what the Messiah would look like. They had expectations that the kingdom of God was going to appear in its final form right away, that Jesus was going to Bring it right then. And because of that, they couldn't wrap their minds around somehow how suffering and sorrow and the cross could be any part of this. And this is the trap that a lot of Christians get into today is because they like to hold on to the promises, you know, of of, God, you'll always be with me. That's a good one. In fact, that's the greatest promise. His presence is the greatest promise, that he'll never leave you or forsake you. But we don't like to hold on to the promise of Jesus that in this life you will have trouble. Take heart, for I will overcome this world. And all the other scriptures that talk about suffering is part of the experience. We we love, my God shall supply all all his needs according to his riches and glory, right? But we don't really like so much when Paul says, I've learned to be content with abundance or lack, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, because I've learned how to suffer for him. I've learned that in all things he's with me and that his grace is available to me. His presence is there for me. And so it's a really important thing to not confuse expectation with expectancy. That we are called to live with an expectancy that God is alive and active and moving in our lives and when he pray when we pray he answers. And when we call out to him, he responds. But we shouldn't ever confuse that with our expectations that life will go a certain way. Verse 35: As Jesus approached Jericho, now Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This is Bart. He's Bart. We know this because this account is in all three of the Gospels, and one of the other accounts tells us this is Bart. okay? A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this story um, is just after the rich young ruler. You remember, that's what we looked at last week. And so as this guy is sitting there just crying out to Jesus to have mercy on him. This, this guy, Blind Bartimaeus, we know that's actually his full name. It's not actually Bart. It's Bartimaeus, but we'll call him Bart. Here's what happens in verse 30, 39. Those along the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when he calls Jesus the Son of, of David, what he is doing is he is making a messianic declaration. He is recognizing that Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, the promised one of God, the Christ. That means the same thing, the Messiah. And the ironic thing about this is when all the religious rulers cannot see this, the blind guy is the one who actually sees, right? And here's the thing that strikes me about this whole little thing. That most of us at this point would have just shut up. As these people said, pipe down, I think. Most of us would have just quieted down. Can you picture that scene? As this blind man, all he's used to is people at the most throwing a little charity by, but mostly what he's used to is people just passing on by, people passing on by. And so when the crowd tells him, hey, quiet down, basically what they're saying is quiet down, you're not important enough, Jesus, this great rabbi, you're not important enough, he's not going to care about you, just be quiet just be quiet. And at that point, I think most of us in this circumstance, I think there's this thing in our heart that for some reason believes that the heart of God is not for us. And I think for most of us, we would have just piped down at that point, that we would have just been quiet. But here's here's the thing that strikes, strikes me is there's something about this blind guy, you just can't keep him away from Jesus. There's something in him that that knows and believes that Jesus will care about him. This guy has a genuine desperation to get to Jesus. See, he's been living with that quiet desperation all of his life. That quiet desperation that he knows that desperation he can't see. Can you imagine the kind of quiet desperation? Knowing that your your very livelihood is, is bound up completely in, in the charity of others and what the little coins they might throw you as they go by. And if for some reason they're not feeling generous, you're done for, right? You can imagine the, the quiet desperation in his life for all these years. But when he hears Jesus is coming, his quiet desperation goes from quiet very loud. And it changes. And he realizes that the main thing he's desperate for in life and the main thing he's got to do is get to Jesus. And you're not going to stop him. And so he just keeps he keeps shouting out. Let me just say for so many in this room, your, your experience started out with passionately pursuing Jesus at some point. Maybe it was at a camp when you really encountered him in, in, in a powerful way that changed your life or on a missions trip or, or in a church service just like this. I still remember going forward as a, as a kid, about 10 years old, I believe, or 10 to 12, and signing a pledge card. God, I will, do, I will give you my life. I will go anywhere for you. I'd already accepted Jesus earlier, but I still remember that powerful moment in my life. And for so many of you, you started out that way. But somewhere along the way, you quit passionately pursuing him, didn't you? Something happened in your heart. Something shifted. The fire that you felt kind of died. Why is it that we quit passionately pursuing Jesus? I think for some, it's because deep down inside, we just really don't believe that the heart of God is for us. We don't believe he's for us. That deep down inside, you have a picture of God as like an angry school taskmaster or principal just sort of wagging a finger at you, and you're always in trouble, and he's always mad at you. Or maybe not mad, maybe that's not you. Maybe your feeling is God's just kind of indifferent. He's just somewhere out here, and he's just indifferent to your life, to your circumstances. What is it in us that that makes us think that the heart of the Father wouldn't want us? See, that's what they're trying to tell him. Jesus doesn't want you. And yet something in, in him knew, no, I believe Jesus does, and I believe Jesus will have mercy and compassion. And so instead of being quiet, he shouts out, what is it in us that causes us to shrink back, that causes us not to engage in what Jesus wants to do in our lives? I think for some of you, You know God is good. I mean, you know, you've read the Bible. You know your theology. You would go, yeah, God is good. In fact, we sang that song just a little bit earlier, didn't we? You are good. You are good. That's a great song. It's a great message. You acknowledge God is good, but deep down, there's something in you that doubts he's good to you. Let's see what we just talked about with expectation. here's, Here's the thing. You see, the, the second part of that song we sang just a little while ago is you're, you're never going to let me down, right? You're never going to let me down. And that's a truth. But the problem is when our expectancy doesn't match up with our expectation of what that means, we translate that in our head to mean not that through everything you will be, be with me and somehow through all circumstances you will work it together for, for the good of those who love you. We translate that to life will go my way. And like I just said, the greatest promise is his presence. It's his grace. It's his mercy in your life. But nowhere in scripture will you find that if you just follow Jesus, things are going to go great. And your life's going to be rosy. I hate to break the news to you. But that's just the truth. And so, because of that, for so many, because that expectation thing doesn't line up, your shift in your heart went from "I know God is good" and you would raise your hand and acknowledge that, but something inside of you doesn't feel that God is good to me. That God is maybe indifferent to me. I don't know why. um, I don't know why this is, but I've even sensed this thing in my own heart. Right? I had a great childhood, you know, great family. And yet, for some reason, when, when I look at the heart of the Father towards me, sometimes I still have that feeling that God is like that taskmaster, you know, that school principal just wagging a finger, waiting for you to do one thing wrong. And if you're a principal in the room, that's not you, right? So I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what that thing is. I don't know what that thing is. But I think it's something that many of us in the room struggle with, isn't it? I talked to, to Jason, who, who uh, leads our youth, and he, he was talking about how about all the time he sees in youth ministry this, this thing that the kids that are the, the first to be up and encourage others and lead others to Jesus and pray for others, yet when it comes to their personal relationship with God— there's this huge insecurity thing that just doesn't transfer through and somehow they find themselves in this hopeless place. Maybe that's been true in your life as well. Maybe that's been true. And so here's how Jesus responds to this guy. Jesus stopped in order that the man be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, I love this, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And there's something I think that's so powerful in this question. What do you want me to do for you? And the honest simplicity of the reply. See, at this point, he could have easily chickened out and scaled down his request. He's got the ear of the rabbi. Maybe this would actually be a great day. He could have asked for for money. I mean, you know, this is the great rabbi. You know, how about, could, could I just, would you support me? But he goes for broke. He asked for the life-changing thing. And actually, it's cool because it says that he left his garment, which would have been the thing that identified him as a beggar. He just throws it off. He leaves it in faith that Jesus is going to meet him where he's at. Shows you how much he trusted in Jesus' goodness and his mercy. And, and here's the thing. We are called to come to God with our requests it says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. To bring all the burdens of your heart to him. And you know what? We're also told in the scripture that he knows all our needs before we even ask. And so for some of you, that's a struggle in prayer. You're like, why do I even need to, you know, why do I pray? Because God knows everything already. And, and the truth is, it's about relationship with him. It's that, it's that act of coming before him like we talked about last week as children in desperate need of what only he can give. Crying out to him and letting him know, you recognize that you are dependent on him. It's the opposite of what the rich young ruler, the attitude of the heart of the rich young ruler that came to him. And here's what happens. In verse 42, Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God, and this is so cool because the blind guy ends up seeing, and it's cool. In Mark's version, um, in Mark's account, Mark tells us that actually Jesus, Jesus tells him here. You see, uh, Jesus says, "Receive, you know, receive your faith has healed you." And literally, the word here comes from the Greek word of sozo. It's more than just physical healing; it's the idea of wholeness and completeness and salvation. It saved you. Your faith has saved you. Because he's recognized who Jesus is. He's come to Jesus in desperation and called out to him and recognized him as the Messiah. And so Jesus says this, your faith has saved you. And Jesus says, "Go." basically, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But this guy's going to have none of it. Instead, he follows right after Jesus. Compare that to the rich young ruler from last week. He can see. He knows all the right answers. He's done all, the, all the, his, his very best from the time he was a kid. The rich young ruler who Jesus said, tell you what, go let go of the thing that's hanging onto your heart and then come back and follow me. He, go, he goes away sad. I think it's such an interesting contrast. Verse one of chapter 19. So that's Bart, okay? Everybody say Bart. There you go. Here's Zach you know Zach too, especially if you grew up in church. And Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And Jericho is in, uh, in modern-day Israel. It's in, it's in the current West Bank. It was known at the time as the City of Palms. It was renowned for all its trees. There's all these natural springs that came up. It's a beautiful city. In fact, a lot of kings would sort of set up their vacation homes there. In fact, the generation before Jesus, Mark Antony, uh, gifted the city of Jericho to his fling, Cleopatra, uh, because it was the coolest place he could give her. And so that's Jericho. And this guy, Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector. And it's interesting because the root, the, Greek, the, the Hebrew root of the word Zacchaeus um, means innocent. And this guy was anything other than innocent. He was extremely wealthy by extortion. He paid for the right to collect taxes for the oppressive foreign government that ruled over. And he got extremely rich by not only collecting what he needed to, but by extorting and adding a hefty surcharge on the top. And I told you this, um, you know, because we know Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and our hearts are warm and fuzzy towards this tax collector. But if you were living in the first century, you would not have felt that way. You would feel about him kind of like you, you might feel about the 30-something-year-old scumbag dude that hangs out down by the, by the middle school at the gas station and tries to sell meth to your kids. That's the kind of feeling you'd have towards this guy. They hated him. They despised him. And so he climbs up this tree. It's, it's a large, evergreen tree that's easy to climb. And this guy, he just, it's interesting. He has to get to Jesus. He, he just, something in him draws him to Jesus. In verse five, when J- Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, help me out. Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm coming to your house today. I'm a little disappointed in the help. (laughs) I told the guys in our meeting, I'm like, I'm not going to sing this time. And Jason's like, come on, I paint, you sing. It's just your thing, okay? And I just found out who all of our Sunday school kids in the the room are, because you're all the ones that laughed. So he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he, Zacchaeus, came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And Jesus, it's so cool. I I, I don't think, we, we're not told, but I don't think Jesus knew this guy before or knew his reputation or who he was. I think this was revealed to him because um, he's Jesus, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as he's coming up, you know, taps on the shoulder, hey, there's, there's a guy you need to connect with up here. And Jesus looks up. And, and in my head, I think Jesus looks up, I, and this isn't in the Bible, so this is just me making this up. But I think Jesus looks up with a stern face and goes, Zacchaeus. And he looks down like... <gasps> I'm caught up a tree. First, this guy ran, which is very undignified. And now he's climbed up a tree, which is very undignified thing for a really wealthy guy to do in this culture. And now he was trying to hide and now he's called out and on the spot and everybody sees this guy they despised, right? And Jesus looks up and I think Jesus pauses for a second. And then Jesus gets this big grin on his face. He goes, come on down, because I need to go to your house. We're hanging at your place today. And this would have been the biggest honor that Jesus could have done because of the hospitality culture in the Middle East. Um, He could have selected anyone and everyone in the town would have been honored that the great rabbi had chosen him to, to be his host. And Jesus chooses the most despised guy in town. And I can just see Zacchaeus' face light up as he realizes Jesus is looking on him with mercy and compassion and not with stern hatred, not with a finger wagging. You see that? It's so rich. It's so rich. And I think Jesus looked at this guy, and he knew what life was like for this guy. Yeah, he had so much money, and, and the greed in his heart is what motivated to do, do that, but none of it has satisfied him. He's living with that quiet desperation he cannot escape, and he knows there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more to life. And this is what draws him to Jesus, He's got to get to Jesus. And it's cool, this word stay is literally in the Greek, it means literally to be comfortable. And I love that because something you see about Jesus over and over again is that Jesus is comfortable around people that are completely unlike him, and they're comfortable around him. There's something about the presence of Jesus that doesn't intimidate, doesn't scare people off, but it's winsome. And we should learn from that as followers of Jesus with everyone we engage with who's not a follower of Jesus yet. There should be something about us like Jesus that's winsome in our our person, just in who we are. And there's no evidence from this text that Jesus, they're hanging out at Zacchaeus' house, they go to his house. And there's no evidence in the text that Jesus gave a harsh sermon That Jesus gave him a five point critique of all the ways he'd sinned. Zacchaeus knew that he was the worst of sinners. He already knew that. There was just something about Jesus' presence being there with him. And somehow through this process, Zacchaeus puts his faith in Jesus. And here's the evidence of that. Verse seven it says, All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the guest of a sinner. They're like, Where did he go to this scumbag's house? they all hated him they all hated him and I think it's kind of funny imagine how they would feel if they knew that 2,000 years later the most hated guy in town is the only guy's name that most people know from Jericho and you all know it right you and billions of other people know Zach's name in fact I bet you know two names of people from from Jericho if you grew up in church one of them is Zach the chief tax collector and who's the other one Rahab. And she had a pretty famous title too, didn't she? A notorious sinner. I think that's kind of a cool thing that God did. Um, so they are muttering. They can't believe it. But here's the change in Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of any, anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And see, he's had a genuine change of heart because Jesus revealed him the heart of, to him the heart of the Father for him. And it wasn't this harsh, condemning thing. It was reaching out to him in love, just being with him, his presence, right? And so he's got a genuine change of heart, and he genuinely repents. And, and here's what that means in Jewish Thought It's not just a change of heart or mind, you know, turning one way. It's literally turning one way and going the other. And that would have involved making things right. Making things right. And so here's how you can tell. He says, I'm going to give away half of everything I own to the poor. That was voluntary. Jesus didn't ask him to do that. That came from his heart. And in Jewish culture, it was considered extraordinarily generous if you gave 20% of all you had to the poor. He goes, I'm going to give half. He commits to it. Also, there were in the Torah, the Jewish law, in the five, first five books of the Bible, um, there are specific stipulations of if you, know, if you steal from someone else, how much you have to give back. If you cheat someone else, you had to give what you, what you got if you wrongfully acquired something plus a fifth. you stole it, you had to give two times. And the harshest category, probably because livestock was their livelihood, um, the harshest category was for livestock rustlers. If you got caught rustling livestock, you had to give back four to five times the amount. And so Zacchaeus, for himself, places the harshest penalty on himself. He says, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor, and I'm going to give away four times what I cheated. He had a genuine change of heart. The stuff that previously had his heart no longer has his heart. Because you get the fact that after he does all this, you know, he he didn't give away all his possessions, nor did Jesus ask him to. See, the point of the rich young girl last week wasn't go sell everything. The point point of it is this is what's holding your heart. Get rid of the thing that's keeping your heart from Jesus. Hold hold what you have with open hands. And this is what we see in Zacchaeus right now. Is he's willing to let go of that thing. And even though he knows when he's done with this process, he's going to be in a lot lower financial position. He doesn't care. Because he's found something that's worth so, so much more. He's found real life. He's found something to fill that void in his heart. And he's desperate for Jesus. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this is Jesus' mission then. And this is Jesus' mission now. Ongoing through his church in the power of the Holy Spirit is to seek and save those who are far from Jesus. And Jesus will go on from this, from this place of, of will, being willing to sacrifice his whole reputation to go into the house of this chief, chief tax collector where everybody's looking down on him. A week later, he'll go to the cross. And the reason he'll do it is the same exact reason. To seek and save the lost. And he'll die between two criminals. And here's what you got to remember. Here's what we learned from Zach. Here's what we learned from Bart. That the father's heart is for you. So what's holding you back from running to him? It's for you. See, Jesus reveals the father's heart. It's for you. What's keeping you from really pursuing him? Is there something that's keeping you from drawing near to Jesus? Is it pride? Is it sin? Is it a habit? You just think you've gone too far? You wouldn't believe how many times as a pastor I hear some kind of version of, if I walk through the doors of the church, the roof would fall down. I'm like, no, no. You don't get it. You're the one Jesus came for. You're the reason why, you know, we're expanding this place. Because he came to seek and save those that are lost. And if you're lost, he doesn't doesn't see you as someone to be despised, he sees you as someone who is lost and needs to be found. This is why he told the parable about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. And if you, are, if you have not committed your life yet to Jesus, you're the one. And he's coming after you with love in his heart. The heart of the Father is for you. And for all those followers of Jesus in the room, let me just ask you a question. I'm gonna invite Winston to come up. We're gonna close in a song here in just a minute. Why why don't you have a desperation for Jesus? You had it at some point. You had had a, a, you read the word and your heart came alive. You spent time in prayer. You wanted every conversation you had somehow in that conversation with people to express the love of God. When did that die? How did that die? And what I want to give you the opportunity to do as we close in in song today is just to to ask the Holy Spirit to revive that in your heart. See, both Zach and Bart were desperate enough to get to Jesus. They were willing to do something that felt crazy, felt a little extreme. And yet for so many of us, somehow we've allowed ourselves to get to this place where we don't even want to be inconvenienced for Jesus. Maybe that's why you're living with quiet desperation because somehow something replaced the place of Jesus in your heart. Somehow your first love got transferred to somewhere else. And I'm just gonna ask, are you content being there or are you dying inside? See, there has to be something more than stuff, materialism, upgrades, constant upgrades, right? Country jam outdoor recreation. Nothing wrong with those things. But if somehow all that stuff, your status, your success, the way you appear before others, if that's replaced Jesus as the thing you're desperate for, you will live a life of quiet desperation. So if you want to stand, we're going to close by singing a song. Some of you, you know, feel free to stand or sit to sing or not to sing. But I just encourage you to really take a moment to connect with God and allow him to do what he wants to do in your heart and your life. And for those, if, if, if anyone is in the room that you know God is drawing you to say yes to Jesus for the first time, I'm gonna invite you to pray a prayer. It goes something like this after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I need you. I'm desperate for your mercy. I place my faith and trust fully in you and what you did when you died and rose again. Come into my heart and life. Empower me by the Holy Spirit to live a life for you. Let's sing and I'll come back up and close this.